0: The words to which I should like to call your attention this morning are to be found in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, chapter 4, reading verses 17, 18, and 19. This I say therefore and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk, not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, who, being past feeling, have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. There you have, in verses 17, 18, and 19, of the fourth chapter of this epistle to the Ephesians, the great apostle's account of the kind of life that was being lived by the Gentiles, by the pagans, by those who had not become believers in and followers of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He describes it, you remember, in order that he might upon these Ephesians, these Gentiles who had become Christians, that they must no longer walk like that, and they must no longer walk like that because they're new people. They're entirely renewed. They have been born again. They're living in a new and an entirely different realm. Now that is the whole object which he has from this seventeenth uh, verse in this fourth chapter right to the end of the epistle. We begin uh, a consideration of this uh, last uh, Sunday morning. You notice that the points he makes of these, uh, that um, henceforth, he says, from now on, that they mustn't live like that. He starts with a Negative. Before he tells them in detail how they should live, he tells them first how they shouldn't live. And again, I underline and emphasize the importance of negatives with people such as all of us are, as the result of sin. Now, having put it like that, having established his negative, he then goes on to describe it and to define it. And first of all, he puts it in general. What is this kind of life? that the other Gentiles are still living. Well, we saw last Sunday morning that it can be characterized in general as being a life which is walked in the vanity of their minds. An empty life. A useless, pointless, aimless life that leads to nothing. Much fuss and pother and excitement, but in the end, nothing. The vanity of their minds, he says, it. it's like a bubble, isn't it? The bubble to look at is very wonderful and attractive and charming. Look at all the colors, all the colors of the rainbow, all the colors of the spectrum. How beautiful! How charming, how wonderful. Look at the perfect roundness of it all. How attractive it all is. And yet it suddenly disappears. There's nothing there. Full of air, nothing else. That's the sort of life they were living. The life of a bubble. With an apparent beauty, an apparent charm and excitement. But nothing in it. And the bubble bursts at the end and you're left empty-handed with nothing at all, in the vanity of their minds. But he's not content with merely uh, stating it in general. He goes on in verses 18 and 19, which we are looking at particularly this morning, to analyze that, especially to show why people should ever live such a life, and uh, to show us very plainly and in detail what it is that has ever produced such a mentality, such an outlook. Now, this is obviously a very important matter. There, we must agree, uh, is a, a most accurate description of the life of the ancient pagan world, and as I said last Sunday, an equally accurate description of the life that is being lived by the vast majority of people today. And the question that must arise in our minds is what is it that can account for the fact that anybody should live such a life, such a completely empty and vacant life, a life that promises so much and in the end gives nothing. Now what is it that can account for the fact that a human being could ever be attracted by such a life and could ever live such a life? Now the apostle here supplies us with the answer. And again, I may emphasize that I'm calling attention to this and following his analysis through carefully and in detail, because what he says here is still the simple truth today. And there can be no doubt at all that the reason why people live such a life is that they've never understood exactly what it is. The final masterpiece of Satan is to keep uh, his serfs so busy that they have no time to think. And even as we shall see when they do stop to think, he prevents their thinking straightly and truly. Here then we have a picture, I say, of what unbelief rarely means. Here we are going to see together an analysis, a masterly intellectual and psychological analysis of the life of the unbeliever, the life of the person who is not a Christian. I defy anybody in any literature anywhere to produce such a masterly analysis as this. For profundity and for clarity, it is quite unequaled. And if you are interested in psychology, well, here are psychology. This is just a psychological analysis. Now, what a condition. Listen to it again. Having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. Now that, you see, is the condition not only of these pagans that nearly 2,000 years ago, It is the exact description and analysis of the condition of all the clever, sophisticated people in this modern world who laugh at Christianity and who deride the Christian faith and who boast of their great knowledge and learning and intellect and understanding. This is the truth about them. Now that's the amazing thing. Very well, let's follow it out. Let's see how it comes to pass that people... Who really pride themselves on their intellect and on their understanding are nevertheless rarely in the condition described here by the apostle. Well, let's look at his terms. You notice that in this 18th verse, the analysis is put in the form of four statements. There are four clauses in this 18th verse. And each one of them is a part of the description, but clearly they can be classified like this. Two of them, the first two, describe this condition in general. The second two, and this is where we've got to be careful, the second two explain only the second of the two general descriptions. Let's put it in detail. What is what is the position of these people who, who walk in the vanity of their mind? Well, says the apostle, here are the two things, the two chief things about them. One, their understandings are darkened. Secondly, they're alienated, they're estranged from the life of God. And then he says, why are they estranged from the life of God? The, the answer is in the remaining two clauses. First, They are alienated from the life of God through, because of, the ignorance that is in them. Because of the blindness, or rather, the hardness of their hearts. So the last two rarely give us an account of, and the explanation of, their estrangement from God. And yet, in a very wonderful way, the last two are also connected with the first. Why is it that these people are ignorant? Why is it that their hearts are hardened? The answer is because their understandings are darkened. So the, this is the order, if you like. Because their understandings are darkened, they're full of ignorance, their hearts are hardened. And those two things in turn lead to their estrangement from God. Now, the classification is a little bit important. Because if we said that the second two qualify and explain the first two, we should be saying something that is quite wrong. We must never say that their understandings are darkened because of the ignorance that is in them. That's putting it the wrong way around They are ignorant because their understandings are darkened. So that's the fundamental thing. The darkening of the understanding leads to ignorance, to hardening of the heart, and these two obviously lead to an estrangement from the life of God. Very well then, let's look at his description here and see exactly what it amounts to. The first thing that explains this vain, empty. Aimless life. You remember Shakespeare also knew something about this. He talks about the kind of person who spends the whole of his time in seeking the bubble reputation and who's ready even to seek it even in the cannon's mouth. That's that vain world. Always seeking some kind of a reputation. A reputation for knowledge, a reputation for wit, a reputation for some kind of artistic executive ability, a reputation for courage and for bravery, seeking the bubble reputation. It is the bubble always, you see, and they'll seek it even in the cannon's mouth. Thus they live because their understandings are darkened it's the only explanation now then what does he mean by understanding well here understanding means particularly the intellect now we pointed out last Sunday morning in dealing with the word mind in chapter 7 in, in verse 17 that mind there is a comprehensive term which includes not only the reason but the affections and the conscience the whole man the whole soul's activity Here, understanding really does mean understanding. It means, in other words, the intellect, as opposed to the feelings and the sensibilities. And uh, I am amazed and I am full of admiration at the perfection of this analysis, how he works it out in every section and segment of a man's life. He puts the whole first, then the component parts. Now, the understanding, the intellect, he says, is darkened in these people. Or, if you prefer it, you can say that their intellects are blinded. And what a terrible thing this is, a kind of Paul has descended upon and is covering the minds and the intellects of all people who are not Christian. Now, this is a great theme with this apostle, as it is indeed a theme of the whole Bible. Listen to him putting it to the Corinthians in the second epistle. In the third chapter of the second epistle to the Corinthians, the apostle is comparing and contrasting the Jews who are still unconverted and the Jews who have become Christians. And you remember, this is how he puts it. He says that the trouble with the unconverted, whether he's Jew or Gentile or whatever he is, is that there is a veil over his heart, a veil over his mind and understanding. He can't see. And the result is, says the apostle, that even when he reads his Old Testament scriptures, as he does every Sunday in his synagogue, he doesn't see the meaning. He sees the letter, but he doesn't get the spirit. There, there's a veil, he says, Blinding, they think they know it, they spend their time in just discussing it and in talking about it, but they don't see it. Why? Well, there's a, there are blinkers, as it were, there's a pall, there's a veil. Something is standing between them and the truth, so they can't see it. And then in the fourth chapter he becomes still more specific and he puts it like this. He talks about himself as a preacher and as an evangelist. And then he says, but everybody doesn't believe what I say. And he puts it in these words. He says, if our gospel be hid, if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them that believe not, lest they believe the glorious gospel of Christ. The God of this world hath blinded the minds It's exactly another way of saying their understandings have been darkened. Now, go through the whole of your Bible and you will find that that is what it says everywhere about men in sin and about men outside Christ. It describes the kind of life such people live, and then it asks its question, why do they live like that? And it says there's only one explanation. It's in their minds, it's in their intellects, it's in their understanding. The highest faculty in men has become blunted and blinded. Men cannot see because of this pall that has descended upon him. He's surrounded by a darkness. Or, if you like me to put it a little bit more theologically, I'll put it like this to you. The most disastrous effect that the fall of men produced upon men was in his mind, in his intellect, in his understanding. Now, that is the whole of the biblical explanation of why man is as he is and why the world is as it is. Here we are, God creates men perfect, endows him with these amazing faculties, makes him the Lord of creation and of the universe. And yet we see something so entirely different, what's happened? Ah, what's happened is that men sinned, he disobeyed God, and he fell. And the fall has had the most disastrous consequences upon men and upon his whole life and living, and of all its disastrous effects. The most disastrous and devastating of all is upon the mind of man. It has darkened his understanding. Now, let me show you how the Bible puts that. There is no word that the Bible uses more frequently with respect to the man who is not a Christian than the word fool. The sinner is just a fool. What's a fool? Well, a fool is a foolish man. A fool is a man who lacks understanding. A fool is a man who does a thing because he doesn't know better. He plunges into something without thinking at all. What a fool, you say! What a fool to have gone into that if he'd only thought for a moment, if he'd only got eyes in his head. He's a fool. He's gone in, he lacks understanding. Now that's the great word of the Bible about the sinner, the man who isn't a Christian. It's the fool who hath said in his heart, there is no God. Of course. It's because he hasn't got understanding. Or listen to Paul putting it in that great parallel chapter, the first chapter of the epistle to the Romans, where he has the same sort of analysis. He says this is what's gone wrong with mankind, though God has made them in his own image, and though creation ought to be speaking to them about God, and though they started by worshipping the Creator, they're now worshipping the creature. Why? Well, this is why, he says, their foolish heart was darkened. Same thing. Or, he puts it again, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. That's uh, the whole explanation of the modern world, I remind you again. Or, to use this other word that he uses, the state of the unbeliever is always uh, described as one of darkness. He's a man who is walking in darkness, even at noonday, groping about in the dark, trying to find. He's surrounded by a kind of darkness. Listen to some of the typical expressions. At the very beginning of the gospel we are told this, that a prophecy is going to be fulfilled by the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the prophecy is this, the children, the people that sat in darkness have seen a great light. There's the human race sitting in darkness. It's been trying to find a way out, but it can't, and at last it's sat down in utter hopelessness and despair. It sinks into cynicism, into hopelessness. The people that sat in darkness, no light, no knowledge, sitting hopelessly and helplessly in darkness, they see a great light. That's the gospel. Oh, think of the apostles' uh, constant and familiar uh, comparisons and contrasts. In writing to these believers, he says, Look here, you shouldn't be living a a life like that any longer. He says, You are no longer of the night. You are children of the day. You are no longer in the darkness. You belong to the light. Children of darkness and children of light, night and day. Sin is always associated in the Bible with darkness. Listen to our blessed Lord himself again putting it. He puts it in these words. He says, this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. That, he says, is the trouble, this loving of the darkness rather than the light. And then it's not surprising that the apostle Paul should use these terms, because if you read the account of his call on the road to Damascus, take, for instance, the 26th chapter of Acts and verse 18, you'll find that this is what the Lord said to him. He said that he was calling him to be a witness both to the people and to the Gentiles, and especially this is his commission, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light. That's the business of preaching. That's the whole gospel of evangelism, that men's eyes should be open, Not that they should be entertained or made to laugh and to weep. No, no, to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, knowledge. It was the very terms in which the apostle was called. And so, you see, our Lord describes himself as the light of the world. He says, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Well, now there I'm giving you these quotations in order that we may see that this is what the Bible says everywhere about the life of an unbeliever. He's a man who is in darkness. He's blind. His intellect isn't working. His understanding has become darkened. Now, we all do the same thing, don't we? We have tended in the past to describe the continent of Africa as the dark continent. That is how we describe people who live in ignorance and in paganism, the dark continent. Yes, but you know, the first General Booth was equally right when he wrote his famous book, In Darkest England. He wrote that, you see, in the Victorian era. And that's the title of his book, In Darkest England. And how dark was that darkness. That was the origin of the Salvation Army. No, but it is important that we should realize this that this applies to everybody who is not a Christian. That is why all philosophy and all speculation, brilliant and clever though it often is, in the end leads to nothing. The apostle was able to tell the philosophers in Athens. That their life was really one of seeking only and never finding. Seeking if haply they might seek after him and find him. But they didn't find him. In spite of these mighty brains and intellects, your Plato, Socrates, Aristotle and all the rest of them, they never found him. They still ended in darkness. I'm never tired of quoting the dying remark of that great German philosopher and poet Goethe. There was a brilliant intellect, but you remember what he said on his deathbed. These were about his last words. More light, he said. He needed more light. He'd spent his lifetime thinking, analyzing, discussing a mighty philosopher, but no, he ends in darkness and he admits it. More light. And an almost infinitely smaller man called H.G. Wells virtually confessed the same thing at the end of his life. The title of his last book was, Mind at the End of Its Tether. He trusted a mind all his life. He admits at the end, in the middle of the last war, that he doesn't know where he is and he doesn't understand why. His understanding is darkened. Of course he doesn't understand. He doesn't believe this book. If only such people read the Old Testament, for instance, say they read the 60th chapter of Isaiah's prophecy they'd find this in the second, word, second verse. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people. There it is, and it's a literally accurate description. Man's mind as the result of the fall is darkened and blinded. He cannot think straightly. He is incapable of understanding Spiritual things. And that is why, of course, he regards these things as foolishness, folly, and scoffs at them and dismisses them. But, of course, this is the height of the tragedy. And this, it seems to me, is the saddest point and the saddest part of it all. While he does all this and is in this condition... There is nothing that he boasts of so much as his intellect and his understanding. Now, that is why I'm really taking time with this. I find, I find it very difficult to understand them, but I find that many Christian people are really troubled and worried by the fact that so many great and intellectual people don't believe in Christianity. And dismiss it and deride it. You know them, I needn't mention the names. They're always on the wireless and they write in the journals and they produce their books. Why I'm not a Christian and so on. Now there are Christian people who are troubled by that and frightened by it. That's the thing I can't understand. Because if you just understood this one text, you'd never be surprised again. Their understandings are darkened. They boast about intellect, of course they say, I'm not a Christian because I've got a great brain, I can think, I'm not taken in by sob stuff, I'm not uh, given this kind of brainwashing, I still am in control, and I am rational, and I can think and reason, and because of my great understanding, I am not a Christian. That's their position. And there, you see, is, I say again, the masterpiece of Satan, and the height of the deception because he has succeeded in deluding such people primarily about themselves. They begin by going wrong about themselves. They think that they are what they are and do not believe what they reject because of their understanding. And the whole time they can't see that their real trouble is in their understanding. Now this is really to me a metaphor for almost humor and divine laughter. The great slogan of the Greek philosophers, the pagan Greeks, their greatest slogan of all was this, know thyself. That, they said, was the whole art of life and living, that a man must come to know himself, know thyself. I say it's laughable for this reason that there was no point at which they failed so completely and so disastrously as just at that very point. And it's as true to say that today as it was 2,000 years ago. They didn't know themselves because they thought their intellects were big enough and great enough to discover God and to encompass God and to understand God. Now a man who starts thinking he can do that is just a fool. He doesn't know himself, and they're still doing it. I do want to emphasize this, that this statement about the understanding being darkened is true of all men who are not Christians. Don't think that this uh, simply refers to illiterate, uneducated people. It's as true of the most erudite, the most knowledgeable, the most cultured person in the world this morning his mind, his understanding, are utterly darkened. And his whole difficulty about this gospel is that this darkness is there between his mind and the thing that he is looking at. Now I wonder whether a simple illustration will make this plain and clear. Haven't you often observed That what is said about Christianity in derision by these supposed great thinkers and philosophers is also said in exactly the same way by Tom, Dick, and Harry, by the men standing at the street corner. So you see, what makes the first men dismiss it is not his intellect, The other people haven't got the intellects, but they say exactly the same thing. The great philosopher writes his book and says, Why I am not a Christian? And you get the impression of this is all because he's such a great brain. But go and listen to the man in the street corner. He says, I am not a Christian. And he'll tell you why he's not a Christian. And he'll tell you exactly the same things. Exactly the same things. There is no difference at all. He says it's played out, it's bunkum, it's out of date. The terminology is slightly different, but the... The essential argument is it is precisely the same. Now I am trying to show that this is a very important matter for us all to grasp. Look at it like this. I remember having an experience a few years ago. I was being driven by a friend of mine through a part of Northern Ireland. And he'd been telling us how we could see Scotland from a given point in in that tour around Northern Ireland. And eventually we came to it, but we couldn't see Scotland. Why not? A mist had come down. I looked with all the intensity I'm capable of, I could see nothing but a mist. He kept on saying, Scotland is just over there. I couldn't see it. Now why couldn't I see Scotland? Was it because I suddenly began to suffer from some terrible disease of the eyes? Had I suddenly developed cataracts? Had my optic nerves suddenly become paralyzed? Was there some defect in my mechanism? No, no. My mechanism was as normal as it had ever been, but I couldn't see Scotland. Why, the mist. The darkness of the mist. But you see, the fact that I couldn't see Scotland didn't mean that Scotland wasn't there. And that I started saying, I don't believe Scotland's there. I don't believe it can ever be seen. I'm looking and I can't see it. What would you have said of me? You'd have said I was a fool and you'd have been right. That is precisely the position. With every person who is not a Christian, their understandings were darkened. I'm not saying that the mighty philosophers haven't got great brains. What I am saying is this, that the greatest brain in the world can't see through a mist. That if the pall of darkness comes down, as it has come down upon the whole human race, that the greatest mind in the world is useless. That's exactly what the apostle is saying in those first two chapters of the first epistle to the Corinthians. Part of which I read to you just now. You see, you're calling brethren, he says, How not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. Why not? Because they're trusting to their understandings and they're darkened, they're blinded. They can't. The princes of this world, when the Lord came into it, they didn't know him. They said, this fellow, this carpenter, away with him, crucify him. Why did they do it? Well, because they didn't know him. Had they known him, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Well, how do we know that he's the Lord of glory? Ah, he says, the Spirit hath revealed it unto us. The Spirit that searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. The natural mind receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he, for they are spiritually discerned. He can't help it. He's got a great brain, I know. But if there's a mystery, he can't see. Are you still surprised that these people are not Christians? And that they ridicule the Incarnation and the Miraculous and the two natures in the one person and that they pour their scorn upon that sacrificial substitutionary atonement and the idea that God should punish our sins in his Son. They say it's unreasonable, it's irrational. I can't accept it, it's immoral. They can't, they say. There's only one thing to say when they say they can't and it is this, of course you can't. Of course you can't. Did you ever expect that you could? Haven't you realized that your whole mind is darkened, that your whole nature is perverted, that the pall of ignorance has descended upon you as upon everybody else. You're in the same position as the merest child, the lowliest, most ignorant man in the world. Your whole mind and understanding are darkened. You mustn't be surprised at this, my friends. You mustn't be disturbed by it. Thank God that this is the truth. Thank God it isn't a matter of understanding primarily. Thank God, I say, for this good reason. That the mightiest philosopher in the world at this moment is in exactly the same position as the most ignorant savage in the heart of Africa. They're both in exactly the same position. The great philosopher has no advantage over that pagan in this matter of the gospel until both of them come under the influence and the power of the Holy Spirit of God. Neither will see it. But thank God, when the Holy Spirit comes upon both, both will see it. Not only the philosopher, not only the pagan, both together. Oh, come back to my illustration again. Take the greatest philosopher in the world this moment and take an ignorant and illiterate man. Let them join me as I stand there in Northern Ireland looking in the direction of Scotland. None of us can see anything at all. Then the mist rolls away and the three of us can see Scotland. You see, it isn't a matter of intellectual ability. It's a matter of this power of vision. Man has lost it. His understanding is darkened. That's the effect of the fall. And then you look at it the other way and you see this. That the effect of the coming of the gospel is always described in terms of light. The people that sat in darkness have seen a great light. Or oh, let me complete that quotation from Isaiah sixty-two and three. But the Lord shall arise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee, and the Gentiles shall come to that light, and kings to the brightness of his coming. Or oh, listen to Paul saying it once and forever: God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined into our hearts, into the darkness of our hearts, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. There it is. It's like the coming of the light into the darkness. Let me at this point ask a simple question. I ask it though it's a Sunday morning service. And there are some people who only come to a Sunday morning service. But lest they may be deluding themselves, let me ask a question. Do you believe this gospel? Is this everything to you? If it isn't, it's because your understanding is darkened. You think you know, you think you understand, but you don't. There is only one reason why people do not believe the gospel and why they are not Christians. And that is that their understandings are darkened. But oh, let me put it like this. You are a Christian very well. Are you perfectly clear in in your mind as to what is the matter with others who are not Christians? Have you become a little bit impatient, perhaps, with a husband or a wife or children or parents who are still in unbelief? Have you lost patience with them? Do you lose your temper when you talk to them about these things? Do you feel like shaking them because they don't see it? If you do, it's because you are not understanding fully still that the trouble with that unbeliever is that his understanding is darkened. You can demonstrate the truth, you can argue and reason and put it before them to perfection and they'll see nothing at all in it. And that is simply because their understandings are darkened. They can't help themselves. They can't do it. Have I ever told you a story which illustrates all this to me at any rate to perfection? It's a story about William Pitt the Younger, one of the greatest prime ministers this country's ever had. He was a great friend of the great William Wilberforce the liberator of the slaves. They'd been in school together, at school together when they were boys. And they were great friends, but you remember there was one great difference between them. William Wilberforce had undergone an evangelical conversion and had become the saint that he was. William Pitt, of course, was a nominal Christian, but it didn't mean anything to him. Now, in London at that time, There was a great evangelical clergyman and preacher in the Church of England called Richard Cecil. And it was the great delight of Wilberforce's life to go and listen to the preaching of this man, Richard Cecil. And he was always anxious that his friend Pitt should go with him. He often invited him and there was always some excuse, affairs of state and being busy and so on. Uh, However, a day came when William Pitt said to William Wilberforce, All right, I find I'm free. I can come with you next Sunday. And Wilberforce was eagerly looking forward to it and praying for his friend, praying that a shaft of light might come to him. However, the morning came and they went to the service. And Richard Cecil was preaching at his best under the unction of the Spirit. And Wilberforce was lifted up to the highest heavens, was reveling and glorying in the truth having a feast for his soul, his whole man being moved to its depths. And he wondered occasionally what was happening to his friend. However, the service ended, and they were walking out together, before they'd even gone out of the vestibule, William Pitt turned to William Wilberforce and said, You know Wilberforce, I haven't the slightest idea as to what that man's been talking about. I have no doubt at all that William Pitt was a greater man, as we judge men in the flesh, than William Wilberforce, a greater brain, a greater statesman. Of course he was. You see, that isn't the thing that matters. The heavenly spiritual truth of Richard Cecil meant nothing at all to him. He didn't know what it was all about. Bored by it, waiting for it to end. The other men reveling, rejoicing. They've been to the same school and so on. You see, this isn't what makes the difference. It's the darkness. And it is a darkness, I say, that nothing but the Holy Ghost can take away. What is the point I'm making? Well, it's just this. That you and I as Christian people have got to realize this. As we think of others who are still not Christians. Do we realize that this is the cause of the trouble? That it is this appalling darkness that's come over and enshrouded the understanding, and you and I can do everything, and it will avail nothing. There is only one thing that can move the mist, take away the pall, and that is the gale of the Spirit. We've tried almost everything else, haven't we? We've organized and arranged and... Use means and methods that we ourselves even have felt to be doubtful. But we say, we'll use anything that will bring them in and do it for them, but it doesn't. How can it? This is the cause of the trouble. Darkness in the understanding. The pall of sin. There's only one thing that can deal with that. Thank God, says the apostle to those Corinthians, it's happened to us. The Spirit hath revealed them unto us. For God, the spirit that God hath given us is not the spirit of the world, he says. God hath not given us the spirit of the world, but the spirit that is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. If you, my friend, listening to me at this moment, have felt this service has been boring, if you don't know what I've been talking about, if you don't understand these things, I say it's because your mind, your understanding is darkened. You're under the dominion of the devil and of Satan. You're enshrouded by this darkness of evil and of hell. I say realize it and cry out for light. Ask God to open your eyes. See the appalling condition in which you are. And I also say this other word to those who are Christians and who enjoy and see these things. Your supreme duty and mine, my dear friends, is to pray for revival. To pray that the Holy Ghost will so descend upon the church that we shall speak in a manner that men will see. I can't do it. I'm like this apostle, even worse weakness, fear, and much trembling. I have no confidence in myself, nor in this church, nor organization, nor anything else. It cannot do it. But the Spirit can, in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. How many of you, I wonder, prayed this morning before coming here that I might be filled with the Spirit of power, that I might preach in demonstration of the Spirit and of power? How many of you prayed for this? Are you leaving it all to me? What can I do, a little pygmy? Did you pray for the Spirit to possess me? Did you pray for revival? Are you doing so? You know the state of society, you know the state of London, you know the state of the world, you're talking about it, but that isn't enough. Don't rely on any men or numbers of men. We need the Spirit of God. We need a visitation in revival power and you and I are called to pray for that, every one of us. If we are Christians, it is because the Spirit of God has opened our blind eyes has taken away the darkness. And that is the need of all others. What a word, what a phrase. They walk in the vanity of their minds because their understandings are darkened. Poor, benighted fools with their sophistication and cleverness and their arguments and disputes and the wireless and the television and their articles and their books. How brilliant! It's the brilliance of a bubble. The brilliance of a bubble. There's nothing in it. There's nothing there. It's their blindness as the result of the darkness. Have compassion upon them. Don't be content with denouncing them. Pray for them. Above all, pray that the Spirit of God may come in such power that their darkness may be removed and their eyes may be opened. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust Audio Library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.